Hello everybody, I'm Andre Harrison, host of Motorsport 101, and um, as you've probably already noticed, um, and you're probably well aware of the news already, but in case you haven't already, um, it is with great sadness that I have to open the show reporting the tragic loss of Louis Salom from the world of motorcycle racing, and specifically Moto2. Um, the incident happened um, free during free practice 2, on Friday, June 3rd, uh, with 25 minutes to go during free practice two, Salom crashed in turn 12, the penultimate corner, or on the current layout, resulting in the session being red flagged. The accident was not recorded by MotoGP cameras. However, a security camera near turn 13 managed to capture video of the accident. His bike hit the air fence and bounced upwards, while Salom, who had let go of his bike, slid underneath resulted in him directly being in the crashing bike's path. Salon was rushed to the General Hospital of Catalonia, where he died during surgery from injuries sustained in the crash. Salon was 24 years old. He finished third in the 2013 Moto3 World Championship. He won nine races and had 25 podiums in his career. On behalf of everybody involved in Motorsport 101, we wish our, our thoughts, prayers and condolences to everyone affected by this horrific and tragic accident. And it's, 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 it's terrible to talk about this. And it, it's difficult to know even where to even start with something like this. But, um, I mean, let's call it what it was. This was a freak accident and just a horrific, horrific freak accident that obviously resulted in, in, in Louis losing his life. And he was a very popular, very well-liked member of the paddock. Um, and me personally, I will never forget that unbelievable 2013 Moto3 title fight he had with Maverick Vinales and and Alex Rins, who have obviously uh, have got on to great things in their careers, and I'm sure Lewis would have done the same in time as well. And um, it was a truly incredible, incredible feud, and um, it was a it was it was what, what captured my imagination and what started to make me follow the lower classes again um, in MotoGP because um, Moto Two and Three are, are amazing championships in their own right. And it, Solon was a, was a key part of that during 2012 and 2013. And, and for that, I am truly grateful. So, goodbye, Lewis. It's, it's been a pleasure to watch you compete. And again, my thoughts go out to everybody affected. And I just want to say on a, on a more technical standpoint, obviously, last week's episode, we did not tape... Uh, we taped obviously way before it happened. We taped the episode on May thirty first, so four days before this happened, and obviously the Friday, the episode was set to go out. Was the news that it broke, so that's why we didn't talk about it um, for obvious reasons, and um, that's why we, we, we're addressing this now, and we addressed it to a degree in the description of the last week's episode as well. So, thanks for understanding, and thanks to everybody that listened of during a very difficult time in the world of motorsport. And in sports in general, for a matter of fact. I mean, we lost arguably our greatest in Muhammad Ali just a couple of days ago. So it's been a tough it's been a tough, tough week for everybody. And um, all I can hope for as owner and lead host of this podcast is that we can take a little bit of joy, 
maybe just a little bit of enjoyment out of listening to us and maybe take some of the edge off what's been a very, very um, brutal and uh, very sad week in the world of motorsport in general. And on that note, I may introduce my co-hosts as ever, Mr. Ryan King. Hello, sir. Yep, I mean, happy to be here, but sad that it was, you know, on this occasion. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, I think we, I think I speak for everybody when I say we, we wish we could be bringing this episode to you under under brighter circumstances for sure. And of course, my other co-host, Mr. Adam Johnson. Hello, folks. Thanks, uh, thanks for locking in once again. This is, um, yeah, this is ne- it never gets any easy to do, does no, it? And never. it's never something we have to. Uh, and this is why every conversation on safety and motorsport becomes so emotional because we feel yes. it so much in times like this and um ultimately as freddie mercury once sang the show must go on so we go on and we carry lewis salom's memory in our hearts indeed and in the tributes have been nothing short of beautiful this past weekend i mean the rose on the bike we saw in the garage and from the seg team and who released a statement of their own i mean they obviously they were very sympathetic as well at the same time they they released the exact telemetry um on this i'm not going to read the whole thing out but if you do want to see it i will put a link to it in the description and it's on their official website that's at www.stopandgo.es um there is an announcement from them regarding that and it goes into detail about exactly what happened using the telemetry available but um it, it's not easy reading I'll, I'll say that in advance um but again if people want want the closure of uh what had happened or what exactly had happened in more detail then uh again it, it's there for you guys to read um the tributes again were beautiful johan zarko who was a very good friend of salom's you could you could see the pain in his eyes as he won the moto two round um again must have been an incredibly difficult race to win for for emotional and physical reasons um they led the tribute with with t-shirts as well on the podium it was a beautiful sight um he, he burned out the tire on turn 12 where obviously he'd lost his life and uh, mark marquez as well who had a 39 replaced the 93 on his bike on the way to park Ferme. um so hey the 39 could be in park Ferme one more time um but uh as Johnson quite rightly said, the show must go on, and it's what Salom's family wanted. Um, that's why we had a weekend in the first place. Continue despite what had happened. Um, so let's let's plow on and let's let's put together the best show we can. That's that's what we do here. And I think it's fair to say that you people listening would want a show out of us, and that's what we're going to do. Um, because I I had I had thoughts whether I wanted to do an episode this week, but I felt like that's what you guys would want. I think that's what he would have wanted. I mean, if if the, if the family gave the blessing for MotoGP to continue their weekend, I feel like we can continue doing a show. So, on on a somber note, Motorsport One Hundred One will be talking about the obviously the rest of the. 2016 MotoGP Grand Prix Catalonia. The weekend involved the elements that, um, that uh, affected the weekend, such as the track layout, as well as um, incidents involving Jorge Lorenzo and Andrea Iannone, as well as rundowns of Moto2 and 3, as well as we had another brand new winner in the Moto3 class, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, we will talk about the IndyCar Jewel in Detroit weekend, a surprisingly quiet weekend, given how crazy... Um, uh, last last year's pair of races was, but Sebastian Bourdais and Will Power 
would take their respective first wins of the season. But uh, Conor Daly may have stolen the show in the process as well. And uh, Power, despite winning, still has something to complain about because he's Will Power. Um, and we were talking about a bunch of other interesting stories from around the world of motorsport, including an interview with Martin Sorrell talking about the nature of Formula One and entertainment value. We'll be talking about the Baku layer, which has now finally been uh, set in stone and finalized. And we'll be talking a little bit about that going forward. We'll talk about Silverstone wanting a stadium around Stowe and their plans for expansion and potential future revenue streams going forward. And we'll talk about Top Gear Episode 2 and specifically King wanting to rant. It's not every day that King wants to rant about something, so when he does, I give him the space to do it. And he does so with absolute facts. Yes, he does. Without question. Um... Uh, so that, that that's bound to be interesting in its own right. So, Motorsport 101 from Catalonia first, talking about MotoGP. And uh, as a result of Solom's tragic accident, they adjusted the track. Um, turn 10, which again has a runoff that is very close to the wall. They, they, they changed from using the deeper hairpin, which uses the circuit logo, which you can see from overhead. That's that's the normal MotoGP Turn 10. It's not the same as the F1 Turn 10 you may play in the video games or regarding the F1 layouts and whatnot. It's slightly different. So they reverted to the F1 hairpin for Turn 10. So obviously a much slower corner to reduce the entry speed. And they used the F1 version of Turn 12, so obviously a, a much tighter Turn 12, which leads down towards the uh, new Formula 1 chicane that they, they had put in. I think it was 2010 they put that chicane in. I'm not exactly sure on the exact year, um, but I believe it's 2010. And they used the F1 chicane instead as the closer for the lap instead of the conventional old-school 12 Turn 12 and 13, much faster corners as a result. Um, so they, they moved towards that and... Uh, it it seemed to have a dramatic effect on on the race itself, King. As I mean, it seemed to bring the Hondas into play, didn't it? Yeah, because it it seemed like the Yamahas were not good when it in the lower gears when it when it came to going around the slower corners and accelerating out of them. The Yamahas just didn't have it, while the Hondas definitely it was definitely an advantage for them. Yeah, the slower. I mean, Honda's greatest attribute has been its 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 closing speed, exiting a corner, its, its its acceleration, and the engine power it generates off the apex has always been its arguably strongest facet. And you know, with with a, with a bunch of first gear corners now inserted into the course, four of them to be precise, um, it seemed to bring Honda into play. Marquez took his first Catalonia pole position of his of his MotoGP career. Um, by half a second as a result of this new layout, which seemed to definitely bring the best out of him. And in the race, we saw it was very competitive as well. Him, It was him and Valentino Rossi that led the way. Um, but after an incident involving Jorge Lorenzo, which we'll get to in a little bit, Marquez decided to play it safe and take the 20 points and take, take second behind Valentino after a late lunge, um, forced him to run wide, and that was effectively game over um, where, where that race was concerned. But... Um, I do find it almost vintage Valentino Rossi at this point, King, that um, he would, you know, Rossi would go out of his way to complain about the nature of the track and would then go on to win at said track. Isn't that just the most Valentino thing ever? (laughs) Yes, yes. Valentino thinking that, yeah, this might be a disadvantage for me. 
let me try to, you know, use my clout to, to, to try to get something changed. And then, actually, I was actually good enough to win anyway. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 just one of those things where you just go, huh? <laughs> um, so it's 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 amazing. You just look at it and you go, um, yeah. I mean, as, as King quite rightly said, Rossi was trying to use his political clout to, to you know potentially try and um, get the circuit readjusted. He was not happy about turn 10 being changed. He didn't seem too too mad about turn 12 changing. I think that was a, that was a unanimous decision in the safety meeting that would, that would, that was called in after what had happened. Um, he was more angry about turn 10, um, but then you got to realize if you change one, you could you kind of have to change the other one because they're both very similar in terms of corners with very sh- very small runoff areas. High breaking points, you know, still relatively strong closing speeds and a, a very close wall that um, people, a lot of people seem to have missed in previous years. And it's this was not a knee-jerk reaction. They had been testing this version of the course since 2000, and I think, I want to say 2012. It was They've been testing this layout for many years. It was debated during testing last year, the possibility of them, of them using the F1 layout instead. So the track is safer, they, but there were about 50-50 on it, and as a result, it never went through. So, obviously now, um, with this incident with Salom taking place, they felt like, you know, okay, now's the time to make the change. They pulled the trigger on it, and that's what's happened. Um, it did hurt the Yamahas, and Lorenzo was a bit of a diva about it as well, as well as Valentino, but um, hey, Rossi goes on to win, so who really cares? And uh, one person that drew ire with this, um, very muchly and was very outspoken about this was Bradley Smith King. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Bradley Smith basically, you know, called out everyone who didn't turn up because only 10 out of the 25 riders showed up. Yep, in case you guys didn't know, Bradley Smith is leader of the safety commission amongst the riders in MotoGP. Um, he was, I mean, it's on BT, it's on BT Sport MotoGP's Twitter page where he talks about this at length after the Grand Prix, and I have to give Bradley a lot of credit. He was humble, he was passionate, um, he was willing to accept his responsibility in what had happened, um, but he was also unafraid of calling Rossi out for his behaviour, and he... He said he felt terrible about what happened to Salom, obviously not just because it happened, but also because he felt like they missed something. He felt like that um, as, as safety commissioner that he had failed as a safety commissioner, that they missed something, but still, in his eyes, was seemingly so obvious. Um, and he said that you know, for safety reasons, it was a necessary change, and that you know, he said that hey, Valentino Rossi's got no right to complain about layout changes when he hasn't attended a safety commission meeting since Malaysia. Now, Jorge Lorenzo, on the other side of the coin, said that nobody told him about said meeting and that he felt angry that he was seemingly excluded. But then Bradley, in said clip with BT Sports, said that, well, that doesn't really add up because we have the safety meeting at the same time every race. Um, it's, he said it himself, it's 5.30 on a Friday afternoon outside Dorna's office. So Bradley knows what's going on. Um, this is the statement from uh, from well, Motorsport.com. It says, After the passing of Moto2 rider Luis Salom during Friday practice, the safety commission, with 10 MotoGP riders present, agreed that the rest of the weekend should take place on Barcelona Tracks F1 layout. 
Um, Smithfield's the president of the meeting defended the turn alterations. We're, we're preempting a potential crash. Valentino is a guy who didn't turn up at the safety commission and hasn't assumed any of his duties throughout the season, so he can't comment. Asked whether Rossi had been present in any safety commission meetings in 2016, Smith said, not once this year, not since Malaysia of last season. So why speak when you're not doing anything? You have no foot to stand on. He hasn't been once this year. He hasn't any reason to speak about this decision. Friday was the day to assume responsibility. Whatever, whatever problem he has, that he's not going to the safety commission anymore, he should have swallowed his pride and turned up and there, there and do what his job is to do as a MotoGP rider to look after the safety. He doesn't, and that's his choice. But then don't say it shouldn't be changed. I don't care what he says. Now, King Johnson, we've spoken about this before. We've spoken about, you know, the nature of the God complex that MotoGP has regarding Valentino Rossi. And he also said that he feels that Rossi's influence can change the mind of journalists. Um... I think he's got a valid point here. I mean, Valent we all know Valentino Rossi has, has got such is on such a plinth when it comes to his popularity. And do you guys feel like you should have taken more responsibility in this? Because I feel like you should have. You yeah. kind of want your top stars in the <clears throat> you kind of kind of want your top stars in the sport to really step up and be and be heard to be sort of shown to be representing the sport in that way. Um, to be honest with you, it's a very difficult spot to be, and it almost makes. By this point, it almost really does kind of bring home the point that Rossi is almost bigger than the sport. Mm -hmm. That he's not even that he's not on this on this. I think it's been brought into sharp focus mainly because he complained about the changes to the track, right. which seemed deeply hypocritical given that apparently all the riders were on board to change the track layout in the first place. So it made him look like suddenly the changes didn't suit. Uh, he suddenly didn't want the changes after all because he was losing out performance-wise on it. And then we hear that he wasn't actually present in the meeting in the first place. It's, it's a very, it's a difficult zone, but I think, I feel like if you're a, a rider or a driver in a series with that much responsibility and that much representation of the product, then you should be, I don't know, I, should, I feel like there, should, there, is a, there is an obligation there and responsibility to um, kind of represent the sport and represent the best interest. Be a sort of locker room leader, if that's the best way of putting it. Yeah, I mean... Yes, I mean I think that's a good way of putting it. I mean it happens in America. It comes up a lot in American sports about having locker room guys and having guys that are willing to take one for the team and you know represent. Like I mean we're seeing it right now with LeBron James in the NBA Finals, for example, about a locker room guy and you know being the leader and, and the responsibility that may come with that. And it's, I mean King, do you get the impression that he's gone at gone at this purely from a performance standpoint to try and save his own neck? Yes, that's how it comes across to me. It, it seemed like he complained about the layout because obviously the Yamahas weren't quick around that layout, and I part of me feels like yes, he he's he's allowed to take that stance, but he should only be allowed to take that stance if he attended the safety commission meeting. If he's involved in the conversation, he wasn't involved in the conversation up until up until it was going to affect his performance. Yeah, it feel yeah, I mean that's a very good point in the sense of I mean Bradley, I think I think Bradley hit the nail on the head. If if, if you yeah sure, you don't have to go to meetings, but don't complain if safety changes and you're not a fan of it. I mean Rossi had the chance to insert his opinion. He had a chance to speak his mind. He had a chance to 
to, to come across. I mean, I'm not saying everybody had to agree with this decision. I can totally understand why Yamaha, knowing the performance of their bike, would draw issue with this. I mean, a team is going to protect itself first. Of course it will. I mean, empathy, I think. Empathy only goes so far when there's a championship to win at the end of the day. And we've, we've all seen it take place in sport in general where they'll only go so far. But on the other hand... If you can't complain about it, if you weren't there and when you had an open chance to speak your mind, it goes for anything in politics. I mean, sure, I mean you you can choose not to vote. That's your right. But if the government comes in and you don't like it, then you kind of veto the right to complain about it, given that you had a chance to influence the decision and you had a chance to influence the government that you wanted to have. You, you you had a chance to have your say, you skipped out on that chance. So, for me, I'm disappointed in Valentino. Um, I feel like, you know, once again, he's, he's flexed his political weight here to try and have things go his way, and for the second straight time, it hasn't gone his way. And I'm, I'm glad that Bradley Smith spoke out and, and was willing to call Rossi out on these things, because somebody has to. And... Bradley as safety commissioner. Um, I mean, did, I mean, I can't imagine what he's had to go through this this weekend, knowing that you know, and him taking responsibility for what happened, um, which is a shame because we all know it's not Bradley's fault by any stretch of the imagination, and it's something that I've never noticed before about turn twelve on that circuit before. So I can see why somebody would have missed it. So. I'm glad that Valentino is no longer just, you know, getting away with being douchey, uh, having douchebag tendencies every once in a while that people are more willing to call him out. But hey, congrats to him for winning, because that's him. Um, um, so, hooray. Um, Marquez in second. Um, Danny Pedrosa ran off the podium in third uh, place as well. I think on his 250th Grand Prix appearance for Danny Pedrosa, so congratulations to him. Ahead of Maverick Vinales, another great performance for him in fourth. Ahead uh, of Paul Spagros, top independent in fifth. And Kyle Crutchlow's best result of the year in sixth to round off the top six. Now, and I bet you know what you're thinking. Where's Jorge Lorenzo in all this? Well, Jorge Lorenzo got the dive bomb treatment. He was uh, taken out of the race by Andrea Iannone and... Uh, it was a very scary accident because it was on that turn 10 we mentioned um, just a few minutes ago and the adjusted turn 10. Uh, Ian Oney has tried a, a dive bomb maneuver into, into turn 10. Um, he's tried to, to overtake at the apex. He's got his braking completely wrong and he's ended up plowing into the side of Lorenzo's bike. Um, they've both gone off. They're both out of the race. Um Lorenzo absolutely seething with rage as a result of this. Um, you, you can see you can see gifs of the situation where Lorenzo is just batting Ian Oni away. Like, don't even talk to me right now. I, I, I have nothing to say to you. Uh, essentially, um, during the accident, um, as a result, Ian Oni was punished. He has been given a uh, two penalty points in his license. Remember, ten in a calendar year will result in a one race ban. But um, he was also been given a penalty. He has to start Assen from the back of the grid after his second major a accident of this kind. Um, King, right punishment, wrong punishment? Uh, I mean, what's what, what's your take on this? Uh, it's seemingly a fair punishment. Two penalty points. You right. have to start from the back because uh, it, going going into a corner like that 
there's no way he could have known he would have a problem with his brakes, but he basically put himself in a position where he was going to take out Lorenzo. Yeah, I mean, they talked to Pado Shibata, who was um, who's Ducati technical director after the race, and um, he called it a misjudgment on Iadoni's part that caused the accident, and it's a. It's almost it's it's almost identical to the one that Danny Pedrosa had uh, at the Circuit of the Americas, you may remember, where he's gone in under braking for turn one. He, he, the front wheel is is up in the air. Um, you, you can see it bouncing up and down. He's endoing the bike into the apex. You know he's got no chance in hell of ever making the corner. Um, and as a result, there's, there's been a poor victim in the way. Last time around, it was um, it was it was Dovi in the case of Kota. In this case, it was um, it was Ianoni um, taking out Lorenzo on this on this turn. I mean, I personally haven't got a problem with it. I think it's okay. I think it's, I think it's a fair penalty. I just want I just wish Dorna would stop making this up half the time. Like Dorna seems to be making these rules up as they go along with this new penalty point system and other grid penalties they're giving out willy nilly. I mean, I wish there was some consistency there, but you know, one of those things I guess that can't really be helped. Um, but yeah, it's 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 funny. Ian Oni's has, has not been good this season. He's he's been a little bit too reckless, I think. Uh, on many occasions, and uh, hey, he's leaving Ducati for what might be a better team in Suzuki right now, so hey, who's the idiot, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, look at it, Maverick was 24 seconds off the win in Catalonia, Dovi, in, who was top Ducati in 7th place this time around at, um, at Catalonia, was 36 seconds off the win, so it looks like we've seen the usual Ducati moment where they're just falling backwards again here, King. <laughs> yeah, we're it's it always it seemed like this last year where Ducati has a very strong straight line speed bike at the start of the season and it seems like they just can't keep up with the other manufacturers and they just slowly but surely drop off indeed and that's, that's what they're doing right now i mean hector barbara is still the top Ducati in the overall world championship as it stands right now um, he still has five points of an advantage on Andrea De Vizioso, who's on the GP16. Hector Barber is on a Ducati that's two years old yeah. and is the top Ducati in said championship. And he didn't even have a good, that good a race. I mean, yes, he had the amazing moment where he qualified in fourth, but he also um, finished the race in 11th, 46 seconds off the win. So, yeah, there's, one, uh, there's many ways of looking at it, quite frankly. So, Ducati not in the best of shape right now. Uh, running off the rest of the points real quick, Dovi was 7th, Bautista in 8th, I think that's, I think that's the prettiest best result since they've come back to MotoGP, so well done Bautista in 8th place for the Grassini team, they, they, they do tend to go strong around here and they've done so again, then Petrucci continuing his fine return in 9th in place, Jack Miller, a career high finish for him in rounding off the top 10 on the uh, Galicia VDS, I'm, I'm glad they finally got a decent result, they were celebrating uh, Gal Australia Galicia's I think 110th anniversary as a brewery, so uh, congrats to them. Uh, good result for Miller in, in 10th. We mentioned Barber in 11th, Stefan Bradl 12th, Eugene Laverty 13th, Cito Rabat in 14th, and the policeman, uh, McKady Pirro, rounding off the points in 15th ahead of Scott Redding. <laughs> um, looking at the overall championship standings, Marquez leads away with 125 points, 10 points ahead of Jorge Lorenzo on 110 Valentino Rossi with 103 in third, 22 points back, ahead of Pedrosa on 82. Vignales 72. Paul Spagaro is the top independent by 11 points right now in sixth place. 
um, as he joins KTM. That was confirmed last week, so good for him. Uh, and his brother, Elish, in seventh. Hector Barbara in eighth with 48 points, like we mentioned earlier. Quick run down of Moto2 and 3. Obviously, Moto2 racing with heavy, with heavy hearts, especially in the case of Johan Zarco. But he would go on to take a very convincing win. Um, in his second straight pole and win at Catalunya, ahead of Alex Rins in second. And Takanakagami back on the podium. Good to see him back up there in third place, ahead of Hafi Siren, Thomas Luti. Sam Lowe's in sixth, Leonis Volga, and Miguel Oliveira's best result in Moto2 so far in eighth place. No Keith Ewan to give him the commentary curse. And King, I don't know if you heard this, but did you hear Keith Ewan say during the race Moto2 bikes don't normally crash well? Uh, no, I did not hear that. He said that. Oh my god. In the middle of the Moto2 race. I, I, I despair. No words. I just... Just I, I, complete. I, why? I just, ugh, I just, I, 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 I was, I was, spe- I, w- I watched it live, the Moto Two race live, and I, I was speechless. I was like, how could you have the audacity to say not to not realize what you just said? Uh, just, just, just awful, awful, awful. It honestly sounds like the sort of thing that you'd you'd say flippantly, and then only about half a second after you've said it, you go, oh, oh no. Yeah. Damn it. I oh no, apo- just please no apology, continue. no responsibility, nothing from Keith Ewan. I just find that very, very disappointing. An accident hmm. was an accident. Own it. So you know no one's gonna blame you if you apologize for it and just say it was a slip of the tongue and didn't mean it, didn't realise um that I said it. Um Yeah, just one of those things. But um yeah, disappointing to say that he's from Keith Ewan. Just moving on swiftly, Moto3 and another very solid race indeed. A great lead in battle in the front between six men. And it was Jorge Navarro who finally got his first Moto3 race win under his belt after a season half of really being a top-tier player at Estrada Galicia. Um, we all know he came into the sport during difficult circumstances. It was originally the Mark VDS camp and um, he was replacing Livio Loy who was cut from the team, but he's he, for the last season and a half, he's been very, very good indeed, and he, I'm glad he's finally got that first win under his belt. Ahead of Brad Binder in second, Enea Bastianini back on the podium in third. I thought it's been a disappointing season for him so far, but he's back on the on the podium in third. Ahead of Romano Fenati, Nicolo Belega in fifth again, another great result for the rookie, and another rookie in sixth with Aaron Canet in the top six. But it's still Brad Binder that's dominating the championship. He's got a 44 point lead on Jorge Navarro with Romano Fanati back in a distant third. So, that's Moto GP taken care of. And you can move on to something a little bit more positive. Let's talk about IndyCar and the duel in Detroit. The tradition of IndyCar running a week after the 500 continues, King. And a uh, bit more of a. Uh, Let's say slightly more dull race weekend. I want to say because races. Well, obviously, I think I think it's a bit unfair to compare it to last year because it was such a ridiculous set of races. But um, yeah, yeah, a bit more of a quieter affair this time round. So I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I would say it was the return to the the it, it was return to the usual order of things. Besides, you know, the chaos of Indianapolis, where we had the teams that were quick. And the small teams that were able to take advantage of, you know, certain situations occurring. Like, during race one, there was the threat of rain, but it it drizzled throughout the race. But it never really picked up, so it didn't affect anything. 
Exactly. Yeah, the, rain, the rain came down. I mean, shout out to our to our IndyCar family, friends of the show, like uh, Sarah Connors, who was down there for the race weekend, as well as Elizabeth Worth and all them lot that were down there. They were all. I think overall they had a good weekend. Uh, yeah, I think that's <laughs> fair to say, um, despite that. But um, it's what's funny about that was that they were all teasing the rain, but the rain was never heavy enough to affect the Grand Prix. It was always it was only ever light, and of course Detroit being a street circuit, it takes much longer. For it to uh, to become wet, where you need rain tires in order to be able to run effectively. But uh, in the race, as King says, it was a it was a fuel based strategic game of chess, and the winner also the game of chess was one of the smartest men in the field. Ironically, it was Sebastian Bourdais, who now has taken back to back wins at Detroit after winning race two last year. Um, King, a nice reminder: Sebastian Bourdais is still really good at this whole IndyCar thing. You know? Yeah, but Bourdais can you know still drive a car. Yeah. And it, it was, you know, a nice one for KB Racing because, you know, it, it's good to see small teams win. It, it happens occasionally in IndyCar, and it's nice to see after the 500 that it wasn't going to be a Ganassi, an Andretti, or a Penske winning right away. Yeah, like, I mean, in a sense, apart from maybe race two, race one was definitely a continuing theme of the underdog, so to speak, with Sebastian Bourdais obviously pitting off sequence and then ultimately benefiting from the caution at the end uh, as Borde took the win and uh, in second Connor Daly ladies and gentlemen Connor Daly <laughs> in second place I mean we uh, celebrate and rejoice from the rooftops says Danny Brennan yes 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 he does. <laughs> and most of Twitter let's be honest yeah, here I like mean, yeah I mean somebody needs to play the Daniel Bryan theme music at this point in time because I almost feel like Connor Daly has become that person yes yeah, so he really in IndyCar I mean, I mean Connor Daly is such an easy man to root for an incredibly likeable charming man and um, he, we all know his story how, how, how hard he's had to fight and, 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 and really work hard to even get to IndyCar in the first place and now he's here. He's ha he's having a fantastic first full rookie season. He was very unlucky at the 500 not to be not to be in the top 20, um, and whatnot. And again, he pitted off sequence. Didn't quite have to have the legs to beat Borde out of the pits, but he was able to be competitive. He stayed with him the entire way through. Um, uh, and you know the, the splash and dash didn't quite come through for Daly in the end, but. Uh, Overall, King, a tremendous performance. And a nice reminder there's more than one world-class Ricky in this field now. <laughs> yes, yes. Like, I, th I think at the start of the season, it was sort of... Uh, it was sort of muted that, you know, Connor Daly was still, you know, a full-time rookie as well with, when he had Mac Chilton coming up from Indy Lights after, you know, his stint in F1 and he had Rossi coming over from his brief stint in F1 with Manor. It kind of put Daly in the shadows for a bit. And this was, you know, a nice return to the spotlight for him after, you know, last weekend, Alex Rossi winning the Indianapolis 500. Yeah, absolutely. And um, a week after Rossi takes the 500, Daly gets his moment as a Ricky Chilton had his moment where he finished seventh at Phoenix. So all the rookies, I think, maybe except Spencer Pickett to a lesser degree, have had their moments and they've looked really, really strong. And um, hey, it's another... Another American coming up the field in this series, which is, I think is exactly what the series needs to, you know, transcend itself and maybe take itself further. And from a popularity standpoint, I know Jalopnik put a really cynical article about the 500's popularity in the hundredth running king, but um, this can only be this, this can only be good for the series going forward, of course. Yeah, this can only be good for the series because generally for IndyCar popularity starts to dwindle after Detroit being 
the last race on, you know, free-to-air television on ABC. And this is generally when IndyCar needs the most attention, when when they really start heading into the the heart of the season where the championship is really decided. Indeed, it doesn't help. It's, it's Texas next weekend on NBC, <laughs> and Texas was a stinker last year. Scott Dixon completely dominated. And, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. This, this, this is where the series starts to tail off a little bit, unfortunately, and, you know, free-to-air TV being an influence on that, obviously, and and still. But, um, again, a great, great result from Connor Daly in that one in second place. Um, and it, it's a testament because I think Simon Pagano said it best after race two where he said that, you know, Pagano, for what it's worth, dominated the weekend. I mean, he led more laps than any other driver combined in both races. He looked like he was still the man to beat out there, looking terribly, I mean, looking terribly good out there. Um, he'd had both pole positions for the weekend as well. So that means he's up to four now um, for the season. So he's, he's taken that willpower role from last season where power maybe, not, maybe didn't have the best luck during races. But he was clearly the fastest man in the series, without question. Um, it looks like we're getting that swapped around now, where Pagano is, is 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 having these great results. I mean, he finished, I think, thirteenth in race one after running out of fuel. Um, but uh, in in race in race one, he would come back strong to finish in second place. Um, so yeah, a quick run out of race one. Borde taking the win ahead of Connor Daly. Juan Pablo Montoya in third. Um, Graham Rahal in fourth, and he didn't have anything to moan about until race two. Good for him. Uh, <laughs> Helio in fifth, ahead of Carlos Munoz. Another strong result for the Mexican. Ahead of Ryan Hunter Ray in seventh. Charlie Kimball, slightly above average, in eighth place. Um, Kanan in ninth. And Alexander Rossi still in the top ten. And uh, the man is not going away, King. <laughs> That's for sure. No, no. He, he's moved up in the championship. He's tied with Carlos Munoz for fifth now. So he's actually improved on his position from last week. Indeed, crazy to say. Takuma Sato in, t- in 11th, Gabi Chavez 12th. Good result for him on his, re- on his return to the road courses for Chavez. Um, ahead of championship leader Simon Pagina, who led half the laps of the race, but um, ran out of fuel o- off-sequence on, on, on the caution after the end of the race. Unfortunate for him. Joseph Newgarden in 14th, ahead of Elotion. Andretti, uh, Piggott, Hinchcliffe, who had an electrical problem but hit the wall and ended up losing three laps. Dixon in 19th, ahead of Power, Chilton and Hawksworth. So, race two then happened, and uh, kind of similar to race one, really. Not, not great weather. Um, late caution was what changed things, jumbled the order around a little bit. But uh, before that, in qualifying, we had some complaints over over local yellows, King. Yeah, we had complaints over local yellows. Uh, Connor Daly had his best time removed and ha- was basically forced to start from the rear because he calls the yo- local yellow. Because in the IndyCar rules, if you cause a local yellow in qualifying, you at least have your best time removed, and you're not allowed to advance into the next session if you're if you'd still be eligible. And uh, Will Power and Marco Andretti both had their two best times removed because they did not slow down through a local yellow zone. They did not slow down enough. You're required to slow down by at least fifteen percent off your fastest time during the during traveling through a local yellow zone and they didn't so they were penalized ouch bummer um a lot of people complained about it but the, them's the rules but uh, as we said the late caution happened um and i mean king i mean what a return to the top for willpower 
<laughs> what it's it's been over a, full, a year a full calendar year since his last one was the grand prix of indianapolis um so it's been over a full calendar year since his last win yeah this is I, almost a bit like how we were in um uh in monaco wasn't it king when we were like <laughs> oh lewis hamilton's gonna win oh wait a minute no he hasn't actually won in quite a while let's give him this one yes and it was definitely very heated in the Penske camp because they were going at it all weekend between their own guys. Indeed, like the Andretti camp was was at loggerheads. We saw that during the first qualifying session during the weekend. That uh, yeah, Andretti and Hunter Ray were not happy, and uh, Hunter Ray's had a pretty darn good weekend in in recovery, really, as as lead Andretti driver, but. Uh, Trouble in paradise in that camp after the 500 win, I think it's fair to say. But uh, indeed, it was a nice reminder that Will Power is still really good at this whole IndyCar thing as well. Um, so Power taking a minute. Again, Simon Pagino, no, he's a pest. He will not go away in second <laughs> place. And continuing his, his, his sensational road course form this season. Um, his, his form in general. I mean, I, I still don't know what's possessed the man, quite frankly. Um, he, he's just having a tremendous season right now in second place. Uh, Hunter Ray in third on the podium, just ahead of Joseph Newgard in fourth, um, Scott Dixon in fifth, Connor Daly, who went from the back to P6. What a weekend the Irish-American has had. Brilliant job from Daly all weekend long. In sixth, ahead of Canaan in seventh, Bourdais in eighth, Andretti in ninth. Not now, Sato ran off the top ten ahead of Graham Rahal, who had a break issue, um, and he reckons he could have been top five or six. But unfortunately, as a result, um, dropped to 11th. He said on Twitter yesterday that he feels his championship chances are now dead and buried. So he's going to have some fun instead, King, which is bound to be great for everybody, right? <laughs> oh, oh, dear. I, just giving any driver just, yeah, you can't win the championship anymore, but you can go out there and cause some trouble and try to win some races. That is, that's scary. That's scary. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is as well, it's not like he's going to be playing tail gunner for any teammates or anything, is he? No. It's a single car team over there. It's not like Piggott's not running with them anymore. So he is literally just, oh my goodness, Graham Rahal unchained. <laughs> oh, stand well back and just light the touch paper. This is going to get wild. Yeah, it, it most likely will. Just ahead of Alexander Rossi in 12th, Gabby Chavez in 13th, Helio, who had his race ruined by being the guy that was leading the pack, um, during that late caution, so that completely ruined Helio's race, essentially. He was in 14th. Carlos Munoz in 15th ahead of Kimball. Aloshin, Piggott, Hawksworth, Montoya, who, who took out his front wing trying to pass Dixon deep into turn seven and then would later go on to hit the ward altogether. So a kind of mediocre weekend for Monty, where that's concerned, ahead of Hinchcliffe, who was taken out on the opening corner by uh, Carlos Munoz. And uh, Hinch was not happy, but he can. He saw the funny side of it. He said that, hey, at least my sweatsuit doesn't get too sweaty this time around because he's barely raced all weekend, the poor guy. Um, so he finished in 21st ahead of Max Chilton, who also uh, suffered as a result of that turn one incident. Is it fair to say, guys, that Hinch and Chilton had pretty dog day afternoons on both days? Yes. yes. <laughs> poor guys. Awful. Literally, they had mares. Awful, awful, worst-case scenario weekends for, for, for the two of them where that's concerned. But as uh, King teased in the championship, uh, Simon Pagano now leads by 80 points um, over Scott Dixon in second place. Dixon, six points clear of uh, Helio Castroneves, 277 to 271, respectively. Joseph Newgarden stays in fourth with 259 points. 
And Alexander Rossi, as King said, has moved up into the top five now with 242 points ahead of Carlos Munoz in sixth with 242. Then no, they're, tied. they're tied on points. Yeah, yeah. They're tied on points, joint fifth, 242. But obviously Rossi having that win breaks the tie on countback. Uh, he's, but, uh, but the thing is that the chasing back is now coming with uh, the experienced names. Exactly. Because you look at the IndyCars, they do it like kind of three by three, row by row when you look at drivers. So like the row behind them is like the mother of experience with Willpower on 240, Kanan on 240, and then Montoya with 233 in ninth place. Um, and oh, oh slightly above average there. Kimball is in 10th of 227 because of course... <laughs> It's funny because there's only four points covering Kimball on 227, Hinchcliffe on 226, Ray Hall on 225, and then Hunter Ray's great weekend on 224. <laughs> so uh, that's going to be a fun one to keep an eye on as well as the season goes on. But uh, not the best weekend of IndyCar racing in Detroit. It was, I mean, race one had a very dramatic ending with Daly leading the charge, trying to get his first win. But um, yeah, just check the highlights if I were you. So. As my throat decides to close up on me for a little bit, let's talk a little <laughs> bit more about some more obscure. You haven't really got any excuse for your throat to be knackered, have you? No, not really. I just, I just have hay fever. What can I say? Uh... I have, given <laughs> what, where I was a week ago. <laughs> and what was funny as well is I ended up listening back to the episode of the podcast, where, which we did a few weeks back. I think it was with Sudderby, wasn't it? Where it was during AFC Wimbledon's playoff semi final second leg that they were recording. And suddenly I went, oh, yeah. And then they make the final, and, and they won that too. How, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dre is now annoyed that I managed to sneak in my Wimbledon reference. Uh... Hey, I'm trying to lighten the tone. Come on. <laughs> Move- we need all the good news we can get. Moving on. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It could be worse. We could be talking about the NASCAR race that's happening right now as we record. Shut up, Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> as I was saying- oh, and guess who's leading? Chase Elliott. Oh, sorry, I'm out now. <laughs> I'm gonna stab Johnson. I'm gonna stab him <laughs> in the neck. Um, as I was saying, he's not, and then he he wouldn't have a show if he did that. I love that you claimed you never talked over me during these intro sessions. <laughs> All you've done. For you the shouldn't last have claimed week. that. Now I'm doing it. <laughs> Bastard! Shut up, Johnson. <laughs> okay, mute. As I was saying before, I was so rudely interrupted. <laughs> Let's talk some Formula 1 for a minute real quick, um, briefly on this one, because there's not much to talk about in that space. But uh, King, Formula 1 had an interview on their website with uh, Sir Martin Sorrell, who is uh, a CEO of multinational advertising and public, public relations company WPP. He's a big-time brand advisor, and he pretty much threw some shade um, regarding the current state of F1 as a, as a sporting standpoint, wouldn't you say? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've read the interview. He he makes some points. Some, I mean, some are just like completely off target, but some are like genuinely good points. Indeed. I mean, the question I want to zone in on, um, I love some of the points to talk about like virtual reality could be very cool for F1 fans. I don't agree. I think that could be a great move for Formula 1 from a fan standpoint. Um, he talked a lot about next generation heroes, Bernie Eccleston, etc. And um, for those guys that don't know, Martin Sorrell's been in Formula One or been involved in Formula One for nearly forty years. Um, since '68, he used to used to be side by side with Sir Jackie Stewart back in the back in the late '60s. Um, 
but he was asked a question in this interview I want to focus on. The question was, Martin, you had one of your first jobs in F1 racing, looking after Jackie Stewart in 1968. Back then, it was a less professional and more dangerous sport. For a few years now, you have been on the F1 board. What's your personal view on the then and now? Now, I'm going to skip the part where he was talking about Stewart for a little bit, but I'll skip to where it says here. It says, I remember that Jackie was the first driver wearing flame-proof underwear. What it definitely was, it was much more flamboyant back then, but that doesn't really make it better in my point of view. There is much romanticism about Formula 1 of the past. Today it has to be more of a family sport, no less. It is a fixture in the Sunday afternoon TV programs, and probably flamboyance, those white silk suits and devil-may-care attitudes would be outworn attitudes today. What you want to see is a highly competitive sport, and the more equal it is, the more exciting it is the more volatile in the sense of results. If you have just one winner continuously, it dulls the enthusiasm. It is entertainment, and it competes with other entertainments, and not with other racing formats. It competes with people's time on a weekend, so you have to deliver. In that, and that is my personal view, Singapore delivers the most value as they think of it as a complete entertainment event on and off track. <laughs> oh, he was going so well until that final sentence. You have to just name drop Singapore in there because they have a concert and shit, even though the concert is not on TV, so it's kind of irrelevant unless you actually bought a ticket. Mm. A Do you know what that... Go on. Thanks a lot, Martin. That's really great. Here you go. Go on, go on Jonathan. You were saying? Yeah, I was just going to say, judging... I know we're, we're going to get into the statement a lot more, but to me, is anyone else getting the vibe of... Uh, in the same way that WWE tries to market itself as sports entertainment and almost and doesn't really like people calling it wrestling. It's like it doesn't really want to be known as a wrestling show. It's it's entertainment. It's sports entertainment. We're compare, competing with our entertainment shows and like they try and cheat they try and condition people to like treat their show more like a sort of ongoing drama rather than something as dirty as wrestling. That's kind yeah. of the same sentiment I got with this. It was like, oh, we're an entertainment show. We're not like other forms of racing. <laughs> so, which is kind of, I mean, I know, you know, we've been conditioned and it's kind of true that Formula One is the pinnacle of motorsport, but it kind of still is a part of motorsport. Yeah, but I mean, we'll get into it even more so. It, he's, he's right in the fact that it shouldn't be comparing itself to other forms of racing because in terms of viewership, despite it declining over the past number of years, it's still orders of magnitude higher than all other series. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, there's no getting around it. 400 million people still watch Formula 1 every every race. So, I mean, it has a very active audience. And see, what I want to focus on in the entertainment side of things is what Sorrel was talking about here was that, you know, oh, this, if the same guy wins every... if the same team with the same driver wins every weekend, it dulls the enthusiasm. While that is true, as much as Formula 1 is entertainment, it is also a sport. There is no getting around this. And sometimes a guy is going to dominate. We see it everywhere in all sorts of sports. I mean, we saw it in, in bloody tennis yesterday with Novak Djokovic now, you know, winning the French Open. And now he's now he's won all four Grand Slams over the past calendar year. Um, we see yeah, he's so boring. Someone <laughs> has to stop him. It's <sighs> terrible for the sport. I mean, a, 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 no. a lovely, charming Serbian bloke who's really popular, really nice and practically unbeatable. What more could you want for in a brand-specific sports superstar? Disgusting. I mean... But, the, the, I mean... Uh, one of the things that blurs the line between F1 and other sports is that when Novak Djokovic wins, you know it's all Novak. And it, when one team dominates in F1, it's because it's pretty much they have a larger factory. Yeah, exactly. I mean, 
there is an outside influence that gives you a better opportunity of winning in Formula 1. In in tennis, for the most part, we all use the same racket. It's all down to the player. In Formula 1, there's a 100,000 or more variables that directly impact the results. And again, no one should be, ever be blaming Mercedes for them being just that good at what they do. Um, and at the same time, I mean... As much as Sora wants to complain, there's no getting around it. Formula One actively crippled an active dominant team in 2005 because Ferrari had won the last seven Constructors' Championships. There's no avoiding that. It's a fact. And they, they, they changed the rules to stop Ferrari being so good. So I don't know what Sora's complaining about here. It's not like F1 hasn't been willing to chop somebody down to size a little bit every once in a while. Every once in a while. Right, King? Yeah, I mean, what, they've done it to Ferrari. Uh, they pretty much crippled uh, crippled McLaren, what, when they banned the turbos, but that, that was also for cost reasons. It was getting way too expensive. But, yeah, they can, they can pretty much change the rules to effectively change, change the order of competition about who's competitive and who's not. Indeed, and it depends on what factory the FAA seemed to like at the time. I think I think now people would love Ferrari to be, to be back up the front again properly, as opposed to this nightmare in silver that um, Mercedes apparently is. If you, if you ask the right person, apparently, oh, the, the situation that they've got going on down there, that, um, you know, depending on who you ask, it's a terrible situation that Merckx is dominating and whatnot. And I mean... Let's let's not beat around the bush. They have won 36 out of the 43 hybrid era races we've had so far. There's no getting around. That's an incredible win rate. And we've not seen a team be this dominant like this for so long in Formula 1. So, you know, naturally, I, I get it. I get why somebody would, would complain at, at the situation like this, King. But unfortunately, the nature of Formula 1, I think, is, a, is more of a balance between a, the sports side and the entertainment side, wouldn't you say? Oh, I would say, I would say you're wrong because, you know, at the heart of it, like even ancient times and like the original Olympic Games, sport is entertainment. There's yes. like, without a doubt, like pretty much if, if the same team in F1 won every Grand Prix for a decade, F1 would pretty much not be a sport anymore because no one would be watching it. Yeah, I mean, as much as sport by its literal term in the definition is a competitive competition, um, unfortunately, it's not going to be classed as a sport if no one's watching it. And, you know, as much as, as, much as there is a literal meaning in context, in, in, in the real world, how the real world is, you know, no one's going to watch F1 if the same team wins all the time. So, naturally, it's why we've had all these rule resets over the years. So, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, Martin, whether you... Whether you uh, want to believe F1 entertainment, yeah, yeah, sure, ultimately you're right, it is that way, unfortunately, there's a problem with that, and that's that one team is also really good, and they have every right to be as good as they are, so naturally that's going to be a problem. Speaking of Formula 1, King, what have you made of this Baku layout that's now, that's now officially now been unveiled, we've now seen it in the flesh, we've seen cars go around it now, we now know what this final Baku layout is going to be, I mean, what have you made of it? Uh, to me, it seems like just another box standard street circuit. It, like the only, I think like you mentioned it before you talked about the show. Like the only really interesting part is the part where they go around the the old city of Baku and the castle there, mm -hmm. where 
that's the only part that's not, you know, a long straight into, you know, either a 90 degree corner or, you know, just a standard city intersection. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, that's how I looked at it. I mean, you compared it to Singapore during the day during those G, during those uh, GP2 races. Yeah. Um, where they they run Singapore during the daytime and it just takes all the fun out of Singapore. It, you just, it, it just kind of exposes it for what it is, which is just like another generic kind of street circuit, really, that doesn't stand out in any way, really. Um, and, you know, maybe they should maybe they should make Baku a night race. Maybe that'll <laughs> mask all these issues that people have with the layout. I mean, I think it's an okay layout for what it's worth. I mean, there's a, I think there's a, I think there's too many 90-degree corners, to be honest, because 90-degree corners are never that fun. Um, but I think the layout is fine for what it's worth um i think it's gonna be okay i like the castle bit in the middle but yeah it just seems to be just striking me full of, of mediocrity yeah <laughs> i mean you anytime you're gonna race in a city you're gonna have 90 degree corners because that's how almost exactly. that's most modern cities are built on a grid like everyone's clamoring like oh we want to like a race in new york on manhattan and we're like yeah if you want that, you could get that, and it would be all 90-degree corners. Exactly. But, hey, you want a street circuit, this is how it's going to have to be. Uh, unless it's Monaco. In which case, sod Monaco anyway. Uh, <laughs> why? Because Monaco. That's why. Um, <laughs> but um, moving on real quick as well. Silverstone. Now, King, the guys from Silverstone the Brown Racing Circuit have uh, made it known they want to expand. Yes, they they want to expand and basically they want to put an arena of grandstands around the Stowe Corner, kind of in a similar way to they have, you know, the baseball stadium at the Mexican Grand Prix circuit where they want to host more events all year round. They want to have concerts there. They want to hopefully have the World Rallycross Championship there. They want to hopefully, you know, have maybe host the Race of Champions just have more events so they could be less financially dependent on the British Grand Prix weekend. Exactly. I mean, that's that's what struck me about Silverstone more than anything else is that, you know, they're, they're two big money makers is obviously the British Grand Prix in, in July and, and, you know, to a lesser degree, MotoGP when they have their Grand Prix of Great Britain there. You know, even though they're about to lose that for the circuit of Wales slash Donington. Um given their fiasco a couple of like, during the last couple of years and whatnot but there's not an awful lot that goes on at Silverstone over the year they, they, they think I they think they're they're kind of limited into what they do I know they do the touring cars as well obviously um on top of the Formula One and MotoGP and they have they have they have the super bikes as well British and Worlds but I mean they don't and WEC yeah, <clears throat> well, but they're not massive money spinners they're not like you know they're not they're not generating that F1 money, obviously. Um, yeah, and like, the only reason why F1 even generates money for them is that they have to put the ticket the ticket prices up so high. Like, they are massive. So, um, like, the, like the, 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 they were talking about putting a new grant up, up at Turn 1, the new Turn 1 now there, and, it's, and they, they had them advertised as £280, which is just a ludicrous amount of money. For a Formula One grandstand, like according to a friend of the show, Katie McConaughey, she told me that you could fly to Belgium and have tickets for the whole weekend, and the overall price would be less than going to Silverstone. And I think that's just absolutely ridiculous when it comes to. I've heard similar stories about flying to Cota for the U.S. Grand Prix as well. <laughs> flying to America 
To, to Texas, yeah. Mm. That's, yeah. Something is badly... It's a bit like the whole debate about train prices in this country, isn't it? That apparently it's cheaper to fly to somewhere in Europe and then fly to Edinburgh rather than get a direct train there. Mm-hmm. So, something along those lines, anyway. It's it's not great. No, no. It's and Britain's always been one of the more expensive Grand Prix on the F1 calendar to begin with. I mean, um, some tracks are dirt cheap, like like for example, Hungary, Austria, Belgium, for Malaysia. example. Malaysia. Malaysia year after year has been the cheapest Grand Prix to go to. I think the equivalent, like general admission price there, would be I think twenty three US dollars. That is so like that's fifteen quid. That's just so cheap. Yeah, because it's it's, it's subsidized by you know it's subsidized by Petronas the uh, Petro, Petronas the the state owned oil company and the Malaysian government. Indeed. So yeah, it's it's one of those things. Um, you just go, huh? And yeah, the price is just ludicrous. And the British Grand Prix, I mean, I've always been jealous of people that have gone to the damn thing because, of course, I'd still love to. Go. I've never been to a Grand Prix and I'd still love to go at some point. But the ticket prices just make it completely unfeasible. Like, I'm not spending 300 quid to go up the road to Silverstone for a race. I think, that's, I think that's stupid. Like, I am rational alongside being a fan. I am a fan, but I'm also a fan that has a wallet. And <laughs> I don't want to see a hole get burned in it. So, um,. It's, it's, I mean, this should be a good thing for Silverstone going forward, right, Kings? If they have more events and they have more revenue, surely that means they could lower the ticket prices, right? Yeah, they would be able to lower the ticket prices for the British Grand Prix and MotoGP. So, effectively, they want these events to help out attendance at the other events. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. So if they if they can subsidize some of their revenue and get more of it, and they they can hopefully if they can get more events and you know put more events on and find a way to make more revenue where that's concerned, hopefully they will bring the ticket prices down. I mean, it's not like Silverstone doesn't want it to be cheap. I know they've actively come out before and said, yeah, we we'd like to put forward like maybe a two hundred pound weekend ticket. You know, two hundred pounds you count, but you get the whole weekend, which is you know a much better value deal than just the race for two eighty. Which is just stupid, um, but you know, hopefully that could work. Because I mean, it, it's it's one of the blue ribbon events on the F1 calendar, the British Grand Prix. It, it should be it, it should be open to everybody. And I, mean, I know the attendances are great. I know they get a hundred thousand plus every time, but a lot of those are just rich toffs and tourists. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, year like year after year, the British Grand Prix is the highest attended Grand Prix on the on the Formula One calendar, and yet it could have so much more. It could have uh, even higher attendance this is number one it's too expensive for them to have more people because they would need to essentially find a way to lower ticket prices have more grandstands and somehow have the capacity for everyone to drive there would be nice would definitely be nice going forward as Silverstone's concerned right and finally, for this, for this, uh, we, we talked at length about Top Gear last week, and you know, not so much the episode, but more Chris Evans' paranoia, seemingly over their fluctuating TV rate. Chris Evans versus the world. It's basically Chris <laughs> Evans versus the world. You're all a bunch of haters if you don't like new Top Gear, and it, it the the theme has seemingly continued because what I found hilarious about this this, this afternoon was. 
Chris Evans reporting that overnight viewing figures in newspapers are a thing of the past and they shouldn't be relevant anymore, yet he was drawing on those same overnight numbers when defending his show's viewership just this time last week. And, um, King, I know you've got something prepared for me here. The floor is yours. Oh, dear. Drop some actual facts for us. Yes, uh, fact, uh... They lost a third of their audience. Fact. Uh, oh. They only had a 14% share of the Sunday night audience. Fact. Which is about 2.8 million viewers. Fact. And I said I would do a rant if they had less than three. I, oh, guess, yeah. I, I guess I had the over-under just about right. Yeah. Good. Not about, as they say on the price is right, not a bad guess in the first place, King. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And what? How many viewers they had last week? I think it was about five points. I think the thing is, the, the overnight... Was, oh, nine million viewers last week. Yeah, apparently. Apparently. The thing is, apparently. the overnight numbers was 4.4. According to Evans' Twitter, it's now a revised number. Apparently, it's 5.6. But that's still less, about a million less than what Top would average in its old era. Yes. And that's what it would average with just overnights. Yeah. The overnights. But the thing is, I think the funny thing about this is that Chris Evans has found a way to spin this. Like, the funny thing is, the overnight numbers on, on last episode was 2.8 million. Yeah. 2.8! <laughs> like, that's disastrous, overnight numbers. Ah, but, but, but what you're failing to understand, Dre, according to Chris Evans, is that the way Top Gear is being viewed is repositioning the way television is consumed. That's a quote from Chris <laughs> Evans' actual Twitter. This is the best tweet. Overnight television viewing figures for Top Gear have never been less relevant. Obviously, some newspapers prefer to live in the past. What, you mean last week when you were tweeting about viewing figures? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, he's saying this now just because people aren't watching it. And, yes... Like, the way people are consuming Top Gear is changing to the fact that they don't want to watch it live anymore. Exactly. That's exactly what I said on Twitter. I said it. I was like, saying that your media is being consumed differently and you're being innovative in that department is a very nice way of saying no one gives a shit about watching your show live anymore. They'd rather catch a rerun or watch it on the iPlayer. Which kind of defeats the purpose, because Top Gear was the biggest, one of the biggest TV shows in the world, if not the biggest, because it was much must-watch telly. And people locked in every night. It was like an establishment, you know, like back in the day, people of our generation in Britain would know that Friday nights at 6.45, you locked in for Robot Wars. For millions of people around the world, you lock in at a certain amount of time, or in Britain, you'd lock in 8pm on a Sunday, it's Top Gear. Oh my God, gotta rush home for Top Gear. It had that sort of value to it. And in an on-demand world that we live in now, that was very rare. And suddenly saying that Top Gear's gone, oh no, we've repositioned ourselves to fit in with that, really. Now, just no, conv inconvenient truths there. Put, put, putting a half an hour show on BBC3 and on the iPlayer as a bonus does not mean you're readjusting yourselves for the new era. It means you've blown your load. That's, that's what it, And it also... Go on. And you know, Chris Harris has still not been on the show yet, and it's been two weeks yet, and I thought... I was just about to mention that. Why is he stuck on Extra Gear? He's the biggest reason people want to... He's the main presenter people want to see on the new Top Gear. And, like, he... I, I've been hearing from a lot of people that Extra Gear is actually better than the main show. Yeah, I've been told by a lot of people that Extra Gear is legitimately really good. I've not checked it out yet. I'm, I'm going to have to now, because people have told me that it's very good. But... It's it's laughable the amount of, like I said it before like and then King has told me on this podcast before there are three types of lies there are lies damned lies and statistics and Evans <laughs> is clearly molding these numbers to fit his narrative that the show is being you know transcendent and the show is you know being consumed differently and like I said 
being consumed differently is a very nice way of saying people do not give a shit about watching us live. Because I, as, as Johnson said, I was that guy. I was that guy that would tune in live on a Sunday night for Top Gear when it was on. And that, in today's media, is rare. That's the only show I did that for on television where if it was on TV and it wasn't a sports event that was live, I would specifically be rigging my TV for 8pm on to see the new Top Gear episode live. Now... And I know certain fans of the show have gone out very defensively saying, oh, you know, you tell them, Evans. You tell them the truth. If you've got 9 million viewers, all of them are online. All in, 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 Probably including the Monday night rerun that you now get for the show as well. And they're saying, oh, they don't like you because it's not coming from a racist bigot. Now, listen to me, people, okay? Jeremy Clarkson is a piece of shit. We all know that Jeremy Clarkson is a piece of shit. You do not need to tell me that. He's a scumbag human being. But there's no getting around it. He's one of the finest broadcasters this country has ever produced. He is brilliant at what he does. And He's basically the Valentino Rossi of television. Exactly. <laughs> and, and Although that's probably not too much of a compliment on Valentino Rossi. I wouldn't go that far with him. Yeah. At least Rossi's not a racist bigot, essentially. That's true. And that's unfortunately... True. We as fans think Top Gear is so good and the top the show's quality was so great, we were willing to give Clarkson a pass for punching out a dude at work, for being racist, for being bigoted, for being homophobic. That should speak a lot about us as a society and about how great we thought Top Gear was as a national institution, quite frankly. Yeah, you know? that basically the British taxpayer was paying for this. <laughs> Yes, and it's 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 interesting. This comes out in a week as well. That we're um, there was a great article, and I, I wish I could remember where I found it from. It was a great article about f um, how fandom is broken, and it was talking about how. Um, uh, here we go. Um, <clears throat> I've just found it here. It's from the website birthmoviesdeath.com, and it's talking about cinema fans, if anything. But this has been true across the spectrum now for most things. Um, it's talking about how there was a twist in the end of a Captain America. A comic book yeah, comic strip yeah, i think yeah. and uh, it was talking about how the author of that was getting hate mail death threats you know all these kind of things mm. uh, and you know it's it's an incredible thing like i remember during the whole storm that uh, that saw clarkson dismissed from the bbc he was actually having to tell people don't give abuse to the producer i punched it wasn't his fault in any way mm -hmm. i admit i acted stupid don't give him grief about it but it's it's a very it's almost worrying levels isn't it of fandom now isn't it that fans are so is it entitlement is it a thing of i demand my entertainment and i love this so much that i'm not letting anything get in the way of it even if the person i love and love to watch on tv does an absolute dick move I like I, I don't think it's i don't think it's so much entitlement i think it's more we just miss clarkson and we're not going to like evans regardless of what he does i think evans is fighting the wrong war here quite frankly evans is never going to win the ratings war he's not mm -mm. clarkson i said it before when clarkson left the old top gear in the 90s weird to say that is now when he left top gear in the 90s the view the viewership fell from six million an episode to three million an episode Unfortunately, as much as people don't want to admit it, Clarkson as a brand made Top Gear what it is today. It has made it this juggernaut that it is now. Evans fighting the war on ratings, he's never going to win that fight. He should... The irony is that it was Clarkson and his um, and Andy Woolman who were responsible for the format that really made it so hugely popular. Exactly. That's when they brought it back in 2002 as old new Top Gear. It, it, um, exactly. And the thing you've got to realise is this. 
Evan should be focusing on producing the best show he can so he can prove people wrong. If you produce a good product, the people will always be there. It reminds me a lot of what Bill Simmons said on Twitter a couple of days ago. It's like The Ringer launched talking about his podcast network, which is massive. It's had millions and millions of plays. I think it's got like 10, 10 million plays already on SoundCloud. It's a name for us to get to at one point eventually. Um, but he said they've not spent a single penny marketing these podcasts. People have bought into Simmons' name. They trust him as a journalist. They trust him as a as an analysis. And, you know, they, they, they believe that if you... He believes that if you produce quality content, people will always be there to listen to it. I mean, I never thought for this podcast we'd be getting three to 500 plays an episode off the back of next to nothing because, heck, we, we've, I moved personally from video making to audio podcasts. It's a completely different entity, a different animal, a different beast. So... If, I've always believed that quality will always shine through in the end. And, you know, critically speaking, these episodes have not particularly gone down well. I think episode two's gone down a little bit better than episode one this past week. But overall, Clarkson is missed. There's no getting around it. He is missed right now, and it doesn't help. And the worst bit is is that he kind of, the spectre of Clarkson still hangs over this, doesn't it? Because yes. the, the new, new top gear, if you will... Um, with Evans and Co, it's still in a very similar studio. It's it's just sort of changed enough, but like the more things change, the more things stay the same. And I think a big mistake a lot of people pointed out was sticking to little things like the tonight intro, things like that. And you're just like, no, this is yeah. not like you either needed to try and continue as before, but bring the presenters in and add your own personality, which I think they've tried to do, and I just don't think it was ever going to work. Yeah, I mean, or like you I needed to send it off. Go on. Yeah, if, like if I had to compare it to somebody, it was like if if someone was a Manchester United fan in the year 2000 and they ended up in a terrible accident and ended up in a coma for 15 years and only woke up in 2015 and they went to a Manchester United match, it'd be like a completely different experience. Yet yeah, it would be the, technically the same product. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, as Johnson says, I think the more things. <laughs> the more they stay the same quite frankly and I think their inability to get away from the format that what made the show what it is today is what's going to cripple them in the long run quite frankly because I just feel like it just feels like old new Top Gear but with new not quite as good hosts and that is going to draw people away yeah I mean according to the Nielsen overnight ratings here another 600,000 people tuned out between weeks one and two 600,000 like I pay the iPlayer plays went down from 575,000 to 379,000. So 200,000 less people watched on the iPlayer either. So Do you know, I'd say a, a problem I, I really think has happened here because, I mean, I'll make it clear personally, I haven't watched either of the first two episodes. I'm judging on, on I've seen highlights of both of them, I have to say. Um, obviously, I didn't watch the very first episode for because Indy 500 reasons. Um, but... Uh, basically, for me, it really feels like they should have gone in all guns blazing on the first episode. Like, the first episode that aired should have been episode three or four of the new series. Like, they really needed to go in there, um, you know, maybe put some massive challenge in involving loads of the presenters. Like, bring in, bring in Chris Harris, bring in the guys, you know, Eddie Jordan straight off the bat. The guys whose people really wanted to see straight off the bat. Have Matt LeBlanc in there, but maybe... I don't know, have them like in three spectacular supercars doing stuff with like exploding helicopters and stuff, you know, something silly like that. But just something spectacular to really have a sort of, yeah, this is not the top gear you're used to, but we're here now, deal with it. If you like it, great. If you're with us, great. If you're not with us, 
go watch the Grand Tour. We don't care. We are the new age Top Gear and we're here to stay. They really needed to kind of set out their story. It almost feels like that's what Chris Evans is doing on Twitter. But the fact that the, the shows so far have been kind of... It's, it's not bad overall. Um, kind of says to me, like, it just kind of sounds like he's... I don't know, pissing in the wind, really. Well, like, it just sort of sounds like he's trying really, really hard to be like, oh, screw the haters. They're just, haters gonna hate. And yeah. you're just like, no, Chris, like you're to, a middle-aged man. You shouldn't be talking. <laughs> <laughs> like, to, it's like, to be honest, like, Chris Evans is fighting a competitor that doesn't exist at the moment. And it doesn't seem like things are gonna get better until the Grand Tour actually debuts. And then, you know, Chris Evans and co can find their niche because there's no way they can compete head to head with the Grand Tour because basically every episode for the Grand Tour is going to be like a t one of the old new Top Gear specials. It's gonna be the classic presenting trio that we know infinite budgets they announced today they're signing sponsors and adver uh, advertising deals and as they announced in the previous week the first episode is going to come from johannesburg so every it's going to live up to the name in every single way so do you compete with that i mean initially i thought they were going to go back down the rather serious route like kind of go for actual consumer oriented stuff but it's almost like no. it really does feel like new no. new top gear is kind of caught between two i mean yeah, there was no. I mean, if they went that way, it'd be absolute suicide. I mean, look what happened to Fifth Gear. They went a little bit too far in that direction. And what, where are they now? The History Channel? Discover, like, Discovery? I'm not sure. They're on the History Channel, and Tiffany Dell said on Twitter but, that, that the Fifth Gear has not got a broadcaster for 2016 right now. Oh, man. Like, they're, they're, that, and that's a shame because there's a lot been, of good guys involved with that yeah, over there. It's not been renewed. And, there's, and then, you know, guys like Tiff and Johnny Smith and Vicky Buttons, and they're all great TV hosts in their own right. And, you know, I wish they would get more work because. Jason um, Plato is very entertaining on TV as Plato. well as a host. Fifth Gear is, is, is a great show in its own right, and, and I think it, it does its job particularly well as well. So, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, how, by the way, how, how epic does the Grand Tour sound right now? <laughs> like, Oh, man. Like, I, I said this months ago, the way, I think it was just after they announced the Top Gear, uh, the new new Top Gear presenting lineup. Uh, I'm, I'm still sticking to that joke, by the way. Yeah. Um, I think even if even Tiffany Dell even came up with, oh, this is a clip from old, old Top Gear. I was like, yes, <laughs> it's spreading. I'm making this a thing. Um, but it, it, it kind of, uh, to me, like we were talking about the, the presenting lineup for new, new Top Gear uh, when it was announced and they had this big lineup of people and all this, all this stuff. And it, it just sort of struck me that it was like Chris Evans was gathering as many people as possible around the table and be like, right, we're going to do this and we're going to try and make this really good. And everyone's sort of looking at him slightly nervously like, um, we're, we're in trouble here, aren't we? And then over the other side of the bar, you've got Clarkson, Hammond and May just chilling on these armchairs and then Amazon Prime's just there like mm -hmm. with this like fat wad of money just like, go on boys, help yourself another margarita. Help yeah, yourselves, come on. Like, Have you come up with a name for the new show? Ah, it's fine, you'll think of one. Yeah. Go on, treat yourself. On me, on me. Yeah, just like Jeff Bezos just laying back throwing $100 bills <laughs> yeah. into the air. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Clarkson's just there, just like, fight, I'm brilliant, I'm going to have another pint. And uh, what, what was your name for it? Gear knobs, that's rubbish. So, yeah, it was just like, you can't, I don't know. It's yeah. just, like, it, I, I, I said going into this that I thought the new, new Top Gear had potential as a good car show. The problem is it's called Top Gear. Yeah. So it's almost getting to the point. It's a little bit like when Two and a Half Men had to do away with Charlie Sheen. Yes. And it was like, no matter who they got in that spot afterwards, it was like, it might be a good sitcom, but he's not Charlie Sheen and it's not Two and a Half Men. It's like, ah, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I to be honest, I want to see when the Grand Tour premieres, how many people sign up for Amazon Prime. It's going Ooh, to I be think you'll see a big boost. 
It's going to be tens of thousands of people at 80 quid a year, and you pay that <laughs> front with Amazon Prime. They're going to make bank on this. Like, like seriously. They're, like, they're going to be emptying truckloads of cash outside Clarkson's house by the time this is all said and done. <laughs> so, yes, just put it on the drive next to the Mercedes 600 big. Because, yes, yes. Because in the fall, Amazon Prime's going to have a lineup because they're going to have the Grand Tour. They're going to have, I think... The second season of Transparent, which was popular, and they're gonna have yeah, a second won season. Yeah, a lot of Emmys. Yeah. yeah, and they're gonna have the second season of The Man in the High Castle, which turned out to be a cult hit, despite not being too doing so well critically. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, Amazon's got some got some weapons there, and the Grand Tour is the biggest one of them all. And I'm gonna be very curious to see how many new signups Amazon Prime's get. I want to say how many got when the news first came out they were gonna be on Amazon Prime, let alone now when the show makes its debut in the fall. So, yeah, a lot to be excited about. And when it comes to BBC Top Gear, well, they're there, I suppose. <laughs> right. Also, if... That is a fact. Yeah, also, do you guys... Like, okay, you listeners out here, send me some feedback. Do you like these kind of discussions where we drift more into pop culture things every once in a while? If, if so, I'll definitely put an earmark on it going forward because... Um, like I, I like drifting into pop culture a little bit and relating things more to other things in, in, in the world. It's still racing. It's still cars to a degree. Yeah, it's all yeah, good. I mean, it, it, it's loosely tied. If you guys like that, let me know. I'd like if you, if can. I'll make a I'll make a habit of trying to, you know, cross some ties and you know cross some bridges here and there when it comes down to it. But um, I'm glad we ended again on a more positive note and just joking about the state of Top Gear right now and the state of the Grand Tour going forward. And um, yeah, I mean, again. We all know it's been a, it's been a horrible weekend in motorsport and whatnot, and um, of course we we, we are, again as we said before continued thoughts and condolences to everyone affected by Louis Salom going forward. But um, I hope we can able to bring a little bit of brightness as you listen into the show going forward. As usual, you can follow us on Twitter: me at Harrison One Hundred One HD, King at Ryan Eric King, that's with two Ks, and Adam at AJ underscore Bomber Sports. You can check us out on Stitcher. Tune in and iTunes as well as SoundCloud, where we obviously are based. We, of course, we're on YouTube um, at Motorsport 101. And uh, good news, guys, I have now been able to join the, the fray as an editor, so I now know how to edit these highlight segments, which you will often end up seeing on um, on YouTube or not. So I can now do that myself. So this is what happens when he gets so sick of nagging me to do it. <laughs> and that he takes matters into his own hands. And basically, he. Called me up on a free day, and we spent, like, two hours going through it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we did. It, it, it was a pain in the ass. It took many, many dozens, but I, I have got it down now. Um, so hopefully we'll be seeing more video content on the channel going forward. And uh, I don't think we're going to take anything from this episode for YouTube, more specifically. But I can tell you now, if you listen to what King's got stoked up coming up soon, uh, his list of little things to do, is, I think he's got an Indy 500 rundown coming up soon. Is that right, King? Very yes, soon? yes, I got an Indy 500 rundown. Hopefully by yep. the end of the week. And uh, hopefully that'll be up soon. And then he's got a little invasion of something planned. Just just, just, just throwing it out there. It, it should be fun. Um, I'll, I'll, I won't say any more than that. Um, but hopefully you'll enjoy that. Hopefully, I think you'll see more Dre briefs from me going forward because like, I'm, a, I'm quite a spontaneous person. So when, when I, I might suddenly wake up at three in the morning and have an idea to write something out. Like I did with my Daniel Ricciardo call on my website the other day. Like That was just a spur in the moment call at three in the morning and by 4.30 it was finished and then I went to bed and I was very happy um so to speak and um 
like drain boosts are very quick to edit. They're only about three or four minutes long. So hopefully I'll, I might just take full control of that series going forward and just, you know, whenever I feel like I'm loading an episode, I'll do it. Just don't put it on, on the F1 subreddit because they hate me over there. They think I'm terrible. Uh, <laughs> they just hate opinions over there. Let's be honest. Yes, yes, they do. They hate opinions. They, they, they like. Do they prefer facts? No, yes, they prefer they, facts. They prefer facts and they prefer Matt's entertainment. God damn him. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But um, that, 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 that's definitely a thing. But um, hopefully you'll enjoy that. Again, lots to come on YouTube coming up soon. Big plans for episode 50 coming up as well. So again, stay tuned when that's concerned. And of course, if you really, really like us, why not back us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. We're putting the final touches on our merchandise stand as well. So all those $10 backers out there, get them in because we'll be sending some shirts out real soon so keep your eyes peeled for that one but um until next time thank you very much for listening i've been andre harrison he's been ryan king and adam johnson and i'll catch you guys next time sayonara That has been a show full of facts. <laughs> we are repositioning the way people consume podcasts. Oh dear. What, we're moving? Moreover, I'm repositioning my button to click the stop button on the recording. That is a fact.